Welcome to Pocket Guide to Hell, the radio show, where we explore the intersections of art, politics, and culture as illuminated by Chicago's past. Along the way, we talk with fine folks doing the work of keeping the past present and show you the places where the city's history resides today. Near the end of the 19th century, a visiting labor leader called Chicago a, quote, pocket edition of hell. Asked if that was fair, he took in the corruption, inequality, and general nastiness and said, quote, on second thought, hell is a pocket edition of Chicago. But these are the stories, the people, and places that nudge us a bit closer to heaven. In his poem from 1914, Chicago, Carl Sandburg describes the city as always being in the process of, quote, building, breaking, rebuilding. When the Chicago Historical and Architectural Landmark Commission was granted new powers by the city council in 1968, one of the first buildings it turned its attention toward preserving, appropriately enough, was Sandburg's former home on North Hermitage, where he wrote those very same verses. The Sandburg home wouldn't get landmark status, however, until 2006, and that process of building, breaking, rebuilding continues to this day, even in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. Here to help us understand how the work of preservation gets done at both the city and the community level is Executive Director of Preservation Chicago, Ward Miller. Ward, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you for having us. So for those out there uh, among our listeners who aren't familiar with your organization, Preservation Chicago, can you tell us briefly about like who you are and, and how you came into being and what you see as kind of your, your mission? Sure. So uh, Preservation Chicago uh, came together in uh, 1999 uh, and 1998 and then uh, became a, uh, and, in, and even into 2000. And about, about 2001, we became an, an official non-for-profit organization. We were founded to focus strictly on uh, buildings within the city limits of Chicago um, and, and focusing on just that area because uh, so many of our preservation partners had a broader mission. Uh, we have a sister organization, it's a statewide partner, and of course the national partner, the National mm-hmm. Trust for Historic Preservation. But we really thought that there should be an organization exclusively uh, dedicated to Chicago um, and celebrating and honoring and, and, and trying to protect its great architectural legacy, as this is one of the great American cities, and it's so well-known across the world for its architectural uh, strides and its legacy uh, from, you know, the earliest balloon frame houses houses to, uh, you know, the work of Adler and Sullivan, Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, Burnham and Root, Halbert and Roche, uh, and it goes on to, you know, Ludwig Mies van der Rohe, really a city of architecture, and we thought that um, it needed its own advocacy organization to encourage preservation not only those iconic downtown buildings and structures by, if you will, architects, <laughs> mm-hmm. but um, but also buildings of neighborhoods. And so we strive to uh, work with neighborhoods and communities across the city uh, to encourage landmark designation. We're regularly at uh, landmark commission hearings, and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, we're really proud of uh, the work we've been able to accomplish as a nonprofit organization. And everything we do is pro bono. Mm-hmm. We're supported by foundations and good people that, uh, that give to our organization to support us and our mission. So no galas, no big donation asks. Uh, it, we just we focus on preservation 24-7. And, you know, one of the key things you do is, you know, you put out this list 
every year of kind of seven endangered. I mean, what's the, the, the criteria for putting together that list, I guess, different levels of, of threat to this, you know, architectural legacy? Sure. No, um, that's a very good question. You know, um, <clears throat> in Chicago, we have a variety of different buildings that we look at uh, each year. First of all, we ask um, our membership and the general public uh, for suggestions of, of buildings that are or appear to be endangered for various reasons. Maybe they're uh, vacant and mothballed, um, or maybe there's you know a published threat. Uh, uh, somebody would want to demolish these and these buildings or these structures and replace them with something else. And uh, we we think there could be better. So we compile this list uh, each year, and uh, it's submitted by members of the public. Uh, we also take uh, headline items from newspapers and other media sources on endangered buildings. Mm -hmm. And we also have a very diverse board of 11 people from different areas of the city. And we ask our board members to also weigh in with uh, buildings that they see in their communities that they feel might be endangered. And from that, um, we have a voting process and uh, from that voting process comes um, uh, about 25, which are narrowed down to seven each year. And that Chicago 7 idea is uh, sort of linked, if you will, tongue-in-cheek to, you know, Abby Hoffman and the mm -hmm. Chicago 7, the Chicago 7 trial, and, of course, uh, the Chicago 7 architects that responded uh, to the modernist movement uh, in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, the Chicago 7 architects. So. Uh, we, we've got a lot of references to seven, and usually about the seventh candidate, uh, we found that uh, newspaper and uh, media sources lose interest. So we thought mm -hmm. seven's a good number. And it's you know it's interesting to, to kind of look at that list because there are some you know prominent structures, particularly in recent years, that you would think would be relatively safe. I mean, I, the Thompson Center comes to mind, although all of us who live in the city of Chicago know the, the various threats that that structure's on or uh, under, pardon me. Um, but also just even in terms of trying to get a structure like that or others um, landmarked and, and kind of having the Landmark Commission take up its case, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Because for those people who are relatively new to the preservation field, I mean, what's interesting to me is that there, there are these different levels and, and layers. So in my opening remarks, I mentioned how the sort of Landmark Commission assumed its more or less current form in, in 1968, roughly. A couple years before that, the National Register of Historic Places was established on, on the federal level. But what does it mean for a building to appear on the National Register or locally to get landmark status from the safe Chicago? Uh, and then there are these landmark districts as well. Can you maybe sort of talk our listeners through the differences of, of these different designations and how that connects to preservation? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, so the National Trust for Historic Preservation is a federal program, and it's it's um, operated by um, the state of Illinois, or each mm -hmm. state, I should say, in Illinois. It's, you know, it's uh, the Illinois Historic Preservation Agency in Springfield. Um, and these uh, suggestions for individual buildings or districts are submitted, and they go through, uh, they've got to meet a number of criteria. Uh, there's usually a long uh, uh, form and process involved in this, and it goes through various uh, approvals, if you will. 
Uh, the National Register of Historic Places encourages preservation, uh, but it doesn't really, if you will, demand it. Mm -hmm. uh, so it really, um, it is a tool, and it's a very useful tool for not only that recognition and honor and getting the story out, but it also um, encourages uh, uh, various tax incentive programs that can help um, uh, under underwrite a historic preservation uh, renovation, restoration, or reuse project. So, but the, the, being on the National Register does not protect your building from mm -hmm. demolition. Mm -hmm. And the only way to really protect a building, at least in the city of Chicago, from demolition is our local uh, designation, which is a Chicago landmark designation. Mm -hmm. And that can be applied to a house uh, or a building. And uh, if the house is very significant, let's say the Roby House, for instance, mm -hmm that designation could extend to uh, areas of the interior. Mm. Or if it's a, a semi-public building like the Palmer House for Hotel, which is now uh, shut down by the pandemic and mm. uh, said to be in financial trouble, uh, it, could con it could also include, the designation could also include not only exterior facades, but usually interior features like the lobby, mm -hmm. uh, the entry spaces, the grand ballrooms uh, within the hotel. The Empire Room is another one. Uh, so the difference between um, a land, an individual landmark is that it may be it may have more protections to the whole building envelope. Whereas if you're a, uh, a, a Chicago landmark within a Chicago landmark district, mm -hmm. for instance, the Pullman District. Mm -hmm. Uh, it really does look primarily at facades and roof lines. And that's true with most of the 60-plus uh, landmark districts across Chicago. It really protects the look, the feel, and the spirit of the district from the street as you're walking down the right-of-way. You can still add to the top of your building or to the back of your building. Uh, it, what we want to really, the exception, of course, would be at a corner mm -hmm. where you would have another elevation that may be protected. But in general, it's, it's trying to keep that look, feel, and spirit. And uh, so it mostly covers uh, facades. Uh, but if you're in a National Register district and you want a tax freeze, um, sometimes you can, do, you can take advantage of that by restoring interior features as well or, or retaining them. Um, for your tax freeze or tax break, if you will. And there's a whole process to that. Hey, Ward, can you talk a little bit about sort of um, how, how the designation of, of what's worthwhile to save? Um, I guess it's uh, at the state level. Like, how is value determined? Um, you know, there's, there's obvious cases, or at the city level too, uh, there's obvious cases of like a, for the Stark attacks and, and uh, very particular buildings like the Thompson Center. Um, but I guess I'm interested also in, in particularly like a more vernacular architecture or, or some of those neighborhood buildings, like how, yeah, what's worth saving? Sure. So uh, we have something called the CHRS, the Chicago Historic Resources Survey, which uh, was published in 1996, and it was a 10-plus year effort by the city. Um, and it really grew out of the fact that there was a Louis Sullivan uh, building that was lost on 47th Street, and a gal named uh, Marion Dupre, uh, uh, who was very prominent along with her husband, Leon Dupre, former alderman, mm -hmm. who also established, helped establish the Chicago Architecture Foundation at the Glessner House, uh, suggested the idea of a, of a citywide canvas. So uh, that survey was finally published in 1996, and it rates buildings by a color coding, red being the highest priority, 
if you know, the Marshall Field store on State Street, the Rookery, the Auditorium building, um, the Row B House, the Reliance building, and the list goes on. And they are, uh, are, are all uh, of world significance, of greater significance than Chicago. And, and then the category below that is, is orange, and that includes uh, buildings uh, like the Palmer House, for instance, a lot of our uh, churches that we see throughout uh, the city and religious buildings, and uh, those those are orange rated. And oftentimes, orange and red rated buildings are prime candidates for landmark designation. So, um, but in addition to that, we find a lot of vernacular buildings that are important. Uh, and when we find a streetscape of them, uh, we try to encourage their preservation. And it's usually outreach to a community group and a specific person as well to lead efforts. And then we work with them. Uh, sometimes we, if there's no community group, we'll lead the effort. Mm -hmm. uh, or if it's a big downtown building, we'll help lead the effort. Oftentimes we work with the community and work alongside of them uh, to see buildings landmarked and protected. And one that just uh, went into landmarks is the Emmett Till and mm -hmm. Mamie Till yeah. Mobley House. And, uh, uh, that was something that uh, we wanted to see um, landmark for quite some time. The organization was responsible for getting Roberts Temple Church of God in Christ at 40th and State, where his visitation and funeral was held, mm -hmm. landmarked uh, more than 10 years ago. Uh, but we really wanted to see uh, his, his, his home uh, landmarked, and that really was the beginning of uh, a sort of a spark, if you will, of the modern civil rights uh, era mm -hmm. and inspired so many from Dr. King to Rosa Parks uh, to action. We, we saw three vacant lots to the south of the building and uh, upon a couple interviews in front of the building found out that uh, it was emptying out of tenants. The last tenant uh, was nodding his head in disbelief that the building was falling into disrepair mm -hmm. as it was gutted and remodeled you know, a few years prior. but not to the best. Um, so we were really involved in so many aspects of promoting this. Um, we weren't getting a lot of, um, we weren't getting a lot of support, uh, but we went ahead and wrote the landmark uh, designation um, uh, in-house with uh, Mary Lou Seidel and mm -hmm. Jonathan Solomon of the School of the Art Institute. And uh, I got a community member, Naomi Davis, who runs a nonprofit organization, Blacks and Green, in West Woodlawn, uh, it's all come together with the aldermen, members of the Till family that mm -hmm. we thought it would be really important to bring them in, even though they're not uh, no longer affiliated with ownership of the property. And then the property, the current property owner at the time was, quote unquote, a house flipper, as he describes himself. And uh, we all worked together, pushed really hard, and were able to uh, not only get the landmark designation um, begun, which was a preliminary landmark designation on the anniversary of the, the approval on the anniversary of Emmett's uh, death 65 years prior, uh, but also the Landmarks Commission voted in as a preliminary landmark on the 65th anniversary of the beginnings of his visitation and funeral. And uh, we just had a whole community behind us, and there was nobody opposed to this. And uh, uh, Blacks and Green has since purchased the house, hmm. uh, but we feel that that couldn't have happened without all of this incredible advocacy and media um, alerts and stories that have been just wonderful. Maudlin E. Hedgerica at the Sun-Times did a wonderful piece, as did Dennis Rodkin and Blair Kamen on this, uh, among others. And, uh, you know, we're really grateful for that 
outreach telling that story and uh, it pushed everybody and it was a difficult battle to get it on the agenda and to get it before the commission but once it was before the commission um, everybody realized how important it really was yeah. it, it really hit everyone's heart and uh, it was a beautiful story and it's, it's and it's and it's uh, not only about Emmett Till and his you know tragic death and murder um, upon visiting relatives down south in Mississippi, but it's also about the advocacy of his mother and the fact that she um, she she toured uh, talking about this tragedy, and, and she also had um, the incredible girth, I want to say, within her soul to uh, forgive, And uh, but she never let that legacy of Emmett uh, pass, and we thought that it was important to uh, honor this wonderful little building it's a vernacular two flat was originally Mm -hmm. a three flat when emmett's family lived there but uh the family occupied the entire building all the way down to the garden apartment and emmett and his mother lived on the second floor so you know really a a great building to celebrate and they're now talking about turning those vacant lots to the north into a park um to memorialize emmett and and emmett till and his mother mamie till mobley so really a beautiful story and those are the kind of stories that we really want to highlight embrace and and uh, buildings we really want to protect uh so i almost think of us as a public service even though we're not but uh, you know everything we do I, I, is done with that same kind of spirit and and genuine love if you will for our city uh our motto is love your city fiercely and well, i think we yeah. do i mean i you know just speaking personally i you know, hearing the story of, of the Emmett Till House, I think is very encouraging, because uh, you know places can play such a strong part in, in connecting people to the past, right? It makes the past less abstract when you can see this is the actual building where these figures lived and and had the full range of, of the human experience. And as someone who used to um, give a lot of walking tours for the Chicago History Museum and other institutions, you know, you definitely get whenever you're dealing with Chicago's past. Uh, once again, go back to that verse from Sandberg's poem that I quoted. You often find yourself as a guide, like pointing at where things used to be, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, right. recently I was doing something where I was looking at the history of folk music in Chicago, and this is where the Gate of Horn used to be, or where the Earl right. of Old Town, even though the building is, is still there. We're also seeing a lot of church closures, especially the mm-hmm. Archdiocese of Chicago is closing churches, and they're kind of doing this during a pandemic when. Uh, you know, we'd like to, they really should, these buildings should have a wonderful send-off, and uh, a lot of these buildings uh, should be protected and given landmark designation. But oftentimes religious institutions don't want the burden of landmark designation. They don't want their hands tied, quote-unquote. And it's unfortunate because in 1987, Alderman Burton at Terrace uh, introduced a special ordinance that uh, religious buildings or religious or buildings in which religious ceremonies happen in cannot be landmarked and uh, that was for fourth presbyterian church mm-hmm. uh, when they were looking at maybe redeveloping uh, the western partial parcel of their site which they eventually did but not with a tall building but with a really a community center building that turned out quite well but that law has hamstrung us for a while and we really need to repeal that ordinance you know these churches and temples and religious structures are gateways to a lot of the communities they're looked upon as um, you know cathedrals in these spaces they're iconic they're towers 
are symbolic of neighborhoods, and they exude a certain amount of pride, and they were oftentimes built with pennies, nickels, and dimes of the faithful and given to these various entities to, you know, staff and steward and maintain. And uh, what we're seeing is, you know, a lot of these institutions are now trying to sell these buildings at top dollar and uh, without a landmark designation because they will not consent to it. And it seems like that's a little anti-community. Uh, you know, these buildings should be available as community centers and places of contemplation. And, you know, maybe they can be cultural centers, too, in some neighborhoods, uh, as long as they're respectful uh, with their programming in relationship to the building they're in. But um, on the coronavirus front, we were we were unfortunate to lose one of our Chicago 7 already. It's the mm-hmm. Chicago Town and Tennis Club. Mm-hmm. It was originally Unity Church. And, uh, and Misericordia Homes, which has an amazing mission, uh, decided to purchase this land for some of their group homes. And uh, we thought this could be more integrated into their campus. And there was a, a, a really tough disagreement. Unfortunately, we had 90 days. Uh, they applied for their demolition permit just before Christmas or the holidays last year. And uh, they, were, they were able to extend the 90 days. We had a proposal to move this uh, to a park 250 feet on what was originally the town and tennis club grounds. But um, uh, and it was going to be an amazing center for immigrants and uh, refugees, as well as have mm-hmm. some park district programs in it. And uh, because of the coronavirus, the clock was not stopped on on that project, and it went forward. So uh, that was one of our Chicago 7 that we lost in a beautiful Tudor-style building. It was later Unity Church, and it was the site of the first mass LBGTQ uh, wedding the day after uh, Illinois uh, enacted that uh, as legal, and uh, you know there were 40 couples uh, that were that were married there, and you know it seems like an important uh, idea and spot to you know to keep to consider maintaining, but um, you know the program didn't main, didn't uh, include that um, idea. That was really unfortunate, and it was a huge community effort that, you know, in the midst of the coronavirus, uh, rose rose up, and unfortunately, uh, the alderman there uh, was sort of wavering. He was a new alderman. He's a freshman alderman, uh, but it was unfortunate because I think that's one that uh, could have been really beneficial to a broader city, as well as the mission of Misericordia, and uh I think we all just needed more of an open mind on that and looked at, you know, the options. It was designed by uh, George and Philip Mayer, who have designed, you know, many prairie-style buildings uh, mm-hmm. in the Chicago area, many of them landmarks, and, uh, you know, also uh, designed Pleasant Home, the Farson House in Oak mm-hmm. Park that's, you know, such a beautiful house and, and open for tours. So we thought this would be a, a wonderful reuse, but um, th- these are the... the these are the kinds of things that we uh, wrestle with right. each day. Well, I've got one final question. Um, so in the, the second part of, of this episode, we're going to be talking to the 25th Ward Alderman, Byron Sicho Lopez. And I know, that, or I expect that we're going to be talking with him about um, St. Adelbert, once again, one of those churches that is, is being threatened uh, with demolition. So really quickly, Ward, can you, because I know that St. Adelbert has been on your list of endangered structures in the past like what would you say is the sort of um the kind of architectural and cultural value of that structure why is it 
important to preserve it, even if it's not a, a consecrated church at, at this point in time. Sure. So St. Adelbert's, or as they say, St. Adelbert's, Adelbert. if you're in, mm-hmm. in, in the Pilsen area. Yeah. And it's kind of funny because if you use that terminology outside, people look at you with a, an interesting uh, mm. expression. And, and then you correct yourself on, you know, and that's one of those wonderful local Chicago mm-hmm. uh, things, if you will. Uh, St. Adelbert's is an important building on several different levels. Uh, one was designed by Henry Schlax, who was considered the best of the best uh, for ecclesiastical uh, uh, religious buildings uh, and, and, a, and a favorite of uh, Cardinal Mundelein. So when you think of uh, Henry Schlax, think of St. Paul's. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to the west of Pilsen, think of St. Mary of the Lake, Saint, think of uh, St. Boniface in Westtown, um, and the list goes on. And, and Henry Schlack actually worked for Adler and Sullivan, Dankmar Adler and Louis Sullivan. You know, Frank Lloyd Wright worked there as well. And so, uh, but, but, he, but Schlack had the gift of, of, uh, of uh, taking a, a historic basilica, let's say in Europe, for instance, and sort of recreating it on a different scale in Chicago. And there's a great art to this. Henry Schlax also designed St. Gelatius, uh, uh, which is now called uh, the Shrine of um, uh, in the uh, Shrine of... Oh, my gosh. Forgive me. He right. also designed... <laughs> um, let me start over again on that. Um, Henry Schlax uh, designed what was originally called St. Clara's uh, that was uh, closed by the archdiocese, ready to be demolished, and under a new name, St. Gelatius, we were able to uh, save that building, and it's now uh, the Shrine of Christ the King in the Woodlawn area, hmm. and it, it, it suffered two close calls. But anyway, Schlax was a really amazing architect, and he modeled um, St. Adelbert, or St. Adelbert's, um, on St. Paul's outside the walls in Rome, one of the great basilicas of Rome. And if you walk inside, you really, you really get that sense. It's, it's done with the finest of materials. Uh, St. Adelbert is also known as the mother church of the Southside uh, Catholic Polish community. Mm. It was really the mother church that allowed other churches to uh, break off of it. And so a very important church, not only to uh, the Polish community and the, and the Bohemian community that uh, once occupied uh, uh, Pilsen and, and in part still does, but really in the last 50 years it's become an important landmark to the Latinx community uh, in Pilsen. And really a spectacular building and campus, and it's two towers which have now been scaffolded for about four or five years uh, for repairs or or, or other, we won't go there, mm-hmm. um, uh, is finally, uh, uh, the city is finally committed to landmarking mm-hmm. the building. They've always said they had 90 days that the archdiocese uh, pulled a demo permit, and because it's now closed and deconsecrated, it no longer has religious services. So you no longer need that permission of the owner to landmark it. So we've been we've been working with Alderman Byron Cicho Lopez, mm-hmm. uh, and he's been really wonderful on this uh, effort to landmark and save St. Adelbert's. And uh, we're really hoping that we'll come along. And we are helping uh, the community and the city of Chicago uh, uh, gain materials 
uh, some in Polish, uh, which are being translated to help with that landmark designation written report. But we're also involved in Pilsen with um, Alderman Cicho Lopez and members of the community in the city uh, to talk about, you know, a big landmark district, which unfortunately, um, you know, there's not a lot of um, support for from those that are most vocal. And the aldermen and a number of community organizations have also uh, spoken that uh, they're not in favor of this. And, um, you know, one interesting idea is we've been encouraging, uh, you know, community benefits agreement and uh, tax breaks and uh, all sorts of uh, things that may help people in Pilsen, many that have lived there for years and years, uh, to protect and repair their facades. And the, the Pilsen landmark district of over 900 buildings would be just protecting, you know, facades, mm-hmm. things you see from the street and the roof line. But you could always build on top of your roof. You just have to set it back. And, okay. uh, you know, it's a planning tool, and uh, it's thought that this will keep people in Pilsen. But unfortunately, um, you know, uh, sometimes things go a little sideways. So we're all trying to work together as best we can. Well, Ward, thank you so much for talking with us about preservation work here in Chicago. I'm certain we'll have you as a guest again, and stay safe and be well. Thank you, Ward. Absolutely, and the same to both of you, and uh, please stay safe and well, and looking forward to being part of your program in the future. Thank you so much for including Preservation Chicago. And if anyone's interested, they can go to www.preservationchicago.org and uh, sign up for our free monthly month and review newsletter um, and also uh, help if they'd like they can contribute or they can mm-hmm. volunteer their services thank you so much yeah thank you all right and now to talk with us in, in greater depth about the push to create a historic district in the Pilsen neighborhood is the 25th ward alderman Byron Sicho Lopez who was also the former executive director of Pilsen Alliance Byron thank you for talking with us how are you doing Good, good. Thank you for the invitation. Good, good talking to you, and I'm in it. Byron, I was hoping that we could start off just by kind of hearing a little bit more about what this proposed historic landmark district is, like how it came to be, and, and what the more recent history of it is. So could you give us a little bit of background? Yes, and, and, and first, just to make sure, you know, so this is a, this is a proposal for a landmark designation. We are, we're building already a historic district, so just to, so that we're clear. So that we are not confusing the term. But this landmark designation, um, the designation for the landmark uh, was conceived uh, under the previous administration by, I understand, the Department of Planning. Um, and, you know, not, not very clear if that was supported or not by my predecessor, but that's something that I inherited before I, um, I, came, I came into office. So, you know, I came into office once this proposal by the Department of Planning was being uh, rushed into council on April uh, 2019. Um, there was a, a meeting in the library. Uh, it was a standing room only almost. Uh, hundreds of, uh, of residents came concerned about this proposal right after the election. I was alderman elect. And uh, many of them uh, advocated to make sure that this is delayed. So since you mentioned it, I mean, there is a distinction um, between a historic district in a landmark district, and if uh, I'm correct in, in what I'm thinking, uh, a good portion of Pilsen is already on the National Register of Historic Places, 
and I think it mm -hmm. has been since the, the early to mid-2000s. And now this landmark district is going to be within this kind of larger historic district. But what is the distinction between the two? So there's two important distinctions. One, the, the Pilsen Historic District um, is uh, voluntary. So you can, you know, you can uh, become a historic uh, building and uh, there are some incentives, um, but it's a voluntary um, process. And like you said, it, it really encompasses uh, pretty much all of the Pilsen community. The landmark, uh, it is uh, a designation that it is not very clear how the map for the area was designated. Uh, it covers pretty much a lot of the commercial spaces, the 18th Street Corridor, the Blue Island uh, Corridor, um, about uh, 850 buildings in total. Okay. Um, but this is a mandatory process. It's not, you know, it's not a voluntary process for the homeowner to uh, put the their, their property into the process. The landmark mandate that mm -hmm. this is now the, uh, a landmark building. And so, and it's stretching basically from Sangamon to the Levitt, more or less, correct? The landmark oh, district? Correct, yep. Okay. That's correct. And then there's uh, a portion in Blue Island, more or less between uh, 16th and, um, I believe, uh, 21st Street, more or less. So uh, on, the, on the face of it, people may hear about this landmark uh, district designation and think like, oh, it sounds great. They prevent these ugly modern condos from coming in and replacing the old beautiful buildings. Like, can you talk through why you've heard some opposition to this designation in, in the Pilsen community? Yeah, so basically, you know, I, believe, I always look at, at a, a policy coming from um, a research perspective, from guidelines that, um, you know, take their time to analyze the facts in the local community. We took a, a year to evaluate formally, to analyze the proposal. We, we did community meetings. We, you know, sent information out, focus groups. And as a result of that, and, and after our investigation, uh, landmarking wasn't solving the process, the, the issue that we have in the, in the community. The issue that we have is, uh, is an issue of affordability and displacement, and that's uh, very well known, uh, not only in Pilsen, but across the city, that we must address. Uh, the, the, the landmark uh, proposal, uh, it does help somewhat in the issue of demolitions, in the similar sense of, of how the 606 suffering from this uh, aggressive wave of development in in Pilsen, uh, of course you know there's also issues of demolition however the issue of of, of demolition and addressing demolition not necessarily help us solve the issue of affordability and displacement in fact some research suggests that landmarking buildings may actually fuel the issue of displacement mm -hmm. but making the you know, the, the rehab process and allowing a building for anybody who's done it is not a cheap endeavor. That's why usually these districts are done um, in, uh, in increments. It's done by, uh, you know, by small chunks and also, you know, generating enough uh, revenue to help the, the homeowners. Now, that's why I understand the archdiocese themselves have not been uh, eager to landmark buildings like St. Albert. And, and, and anybody who's been in Pilsen, can tell you that if there's one landmark building, you know, it must be St. Adelbert. Yeah. It is because it is an, uh, an expensive endeavor that not even developers like to, um, to incur. Worse for a small homeowner that is barely making ends meet or paying taxes or has to already struggle to make their buildings up to code. 
So are, are there are yeah. there are some other good examples from across across the nation, places like you know Philadelphia or you know other old cities that have that have also been doing some of these um, uh, landmark uh, districts or something similar to it. There's no there's no research that there's no one single uh, peer-reviewed article that suggests that this uh, landmarking process will address affordability mm-hmm. um, in the sense of the people in the community is is asking. For instance, our property taxes in in terms of the last 90 years uh, have increased fivefold. You know, just a little below downtown, which is you know uh, a clear explanation of what happens when there's development that is um, unconscious, that is without planning, and when you have a pay-to-play culture that has displaced around 14,000 uh, mainly Latino residents for Pilsen. Now, uh, there is some research that indicates that you know uh, demolition freezes accompanied by um, property tax reform and of course incentives and relief for tenants and homeowners is the way to go. Uh, I think that is the path that we are choosing uh, we're not choosing to be the next Lincoln Park. Like here in the city, we have clear examples of what has happened in communities like Lincoln Park. I don't know if there's any traces of the Latino community in Lincoln Park now. Now there's a clear example, or in Lakeview, where I mean, I know in Lakeview has been, um, you know, some is some I guess examples of landmarking. But again, in terms of preservation, not only of, of buildings but preservation of people, there's really not a lot of research. This is, of course, a challenge across urban areas of how we do preservation without displacement, how we do preservation of buildings and people. And we believe that we have a team of researchers from the Borges Center. You know, we've been working with Professor uh, Betancourt and Professor Smith, Professor Curran from DePaul, working on a, on, a, on a real interesting plan on how we can do this, how can we do preservation. Uh, and right now we're already in the process, and unfortunately with the, the pressure of of parishioners and people in Pilsen, now St. Albert is in the process of being landmarked after a long fight. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad that uh, we are able to, to work line in line with Preservation Chicago. But experiments like experimenting with 850 uh, buildings when you have low-income residents, it can be a costly um, experiment, especially on a community that's already struggling with this place. Yeah. Well, it's interesting if you go to um, the Department of Planning and Development's uh, website, they have a lot of information on this, and they kind of present this sort of landmark district designation as kind of a um, one of many responses to issues in the community. So pairing it with an affordable requirement ordinance, uh, greater resources, commitments to like creating more open spaces. Uh, do you feel that in some ways connecting or pairing the landmark district designation with these other initiatives, it's, it's sort of maybe muddying the waters a little bit, or or um, suggesting that you know maybe all these components aren't working in a coordinated way to kind of help keep the people who are currently in the community there. Well, the Department the, the of Planning has a very poor record of uh, of uh, addressing displacement in the city. I mean, it's very clear, and you know, I think that now there's been some new staffing. You know, hopefully, you know, there, there's change. I mean, in the last hearing that Commissioner Cox had, you know. Uh, there are many aldermen who question the practices of the Department of Planning. Now, uh, it is clear that uh, in, in, in the practices of the Department of Planning, they use landmarking as their tool for urban planning. And that's very clear. We, and, I, and I mentioned a few examples before. The experiments that uh, the, the Department of Planning want to do with a community like Pilsen, to me, is unprecedented. You know, mm-hmm. I think that 
you know, landmarking San Adalbert, landmarking uh, important buildings in the community. Uh, it's important, and we've been working with the Preservation Chicago for that. Now, we're talking about, you know, landmarking 850 buildings in, in a community like Pilsen that is already struggling without any other tools to prevent any kind of displacement. I mean, we talk about $3 million in grants that won't even cover 20 buildings, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of the preservation that you need. Uh, not even St. Albert, probably. Well, probably St. Albert will need the $3 million alone. Now, when we talk about preserving, you know, and without displacement, I mean, I want to know, I mean, and, and the Department of Planning has been disingenuous in the fact to say, no, but this is not, there's not going to be effects. You know, people, people will, you know, we will not pressure people, but then in the same month, because unfortunately this ordinance, as it was conceived, already kind of is uh, having some administrative efforts to prevent demolitions, but also already putting some of these guidelines in place. And the small businesses are already um, uh, reporting that they're being expedited, quote unquote, charging thousands of dollars to process building permits, to process hmm. awning permits, to process window permits, and the cost of materials that this will represent. Right. So I, you know, I, I think that there are there is a way to do this. Uh, there is a way, like I said, we, we, we think about a combination of things that we, we can do. I do think that uh, landmarking and other is, of course, a, a priority for us, and that we need to make sure that we provide a property tax reform. I think we're working right now with Commissioner Anaya. We hope mm-hmm. this week maybe, uh, well, uh, we pretty soon will be um, announcing some plans on how we can help homeowners who are, pro- you know, um, providing affordable spaces for commercial and, and residential spaces. We can provide these incentives for those who are struggling. But mm-hmm. imagine what it would be for the city of Chicago in this juncture with the fiscal situation that we have to give even extra incentives to developers who are displacing families. To me, it's absurd to give, uh, and, and for this kind of endeavor, you need to have 25% of the assessment value of your property set aside. Mm-hmm. You mean, that means that you need liquidity to be able to uh, qualify for these incentives similar to what we've done and what is needed on the Pilsen Historic District. Right. And you will see, I mean, it's public record, there's very few people who've been able to qualify. So imagine what it would be to be for a city like ours to give now not only those resources for, uh, to, to fix apartments and the, and, and the homes to developers and freezing their taxes, and then the rest of the people in the community will have to pay for those, for right. those, uh, for those freezes. Now, I think it's very important that the community understands these mechanisms very well. That's what the Department of Planning has a really uh, poor record on doing this. We are trying to inform the Department of Planning, with along with the Housing Department, along with the Census Office, on how we can do such a thing. We are introducing also along with the uh, landmark uh, vote that we hope to strike it down, we are putting forward a demolition freeze, at least for six months, that can be renewed until we put forward this plan with the assessor's office so that we can bring relief and we can provide a, a, a pathway. And there's, a, there's some municipalities that have some uh, framework in terms of how we can um, regulate demolitions. Because again, demolitions do come in the big, big wave of development, but we don't want to replace you know, these homes instead of, for a, uh, instead of larger buildings, we're going to replace it by mansion. That's kind of the option that we have. What we want is actually real preservation helping those who already live in these buildings, those small businesses, those homeowners, to be able to qualify for incentives so that they can stay in their community that they have built um, and they, they love. 
right? That's kind of like the irony about the calling it a preservation strategy is, is you know, like what and who is, is, is being preserved. I mean, that's one of the things that kind of in, in talking to you and learning more about this issue, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out sort of who's asking for this and who does this, does, does this designation help? So like, why do you have a sense about why this even started? I know what you said that it, it was back when Solis was alderman and everything, but do you have any any sense about who was like who were some of the initial movers and in actually getting this uh, on the ground off the ground? Absolutely. So I think it, there's a, there's a report uh, at the end of uh, I think December 2019, I believe, but the Tribune uh, gives a report about how architects and contractors were fueling. Uh, the campaigns, um, campaign coffers of certain aldermen. Of course, my predecessor will be right up in the list. So, of course, this would be beneficial for, you know, specialty architects who specialize in, um, in landmarks that, you know, and contractors that will be, bene- you know, benefiting by their, their rehab work that will be imposed on residents and homeowners. So that's, I think, a very clear connection on who does this favor. Now, I do think that in a community like Pilsen that is struggling, um, you know, with taxes, like I said, a five-fold increase in the last 19 years, which is far exceeds the increase in cost of living of about 56%. So, you know, a 500% increase in property values explains clearly what happened in Pilsen under a corrupt administration. So we are very clear that we will, you know, when we came in into office, that we're going to make sure that we have a research-based, community-based practices, community-driven processes, and we'll have the best people on the field to analyze everything that comes up to your table, to analyze something that is a national problem, is a global problem, mm. but there are indications of what can be done. And I do have great friends in the preservation field, and, you know, like I said, we will continue working in San Albert and, and landmarking buildings as we can, but displacing residents more residents for a community, iconic community like Pilsen, uh, a community that you know is a welcoming community for immigrants like myself for for decades, uh, is, is something that we cannot do. This is a uniqueness in our community, and that social fabric means that we need not only to protect the, the buildings, but we need to protect the people of Pilsen. And I think that we do have some uh, some tools and some uh, some um, some ordinances that are ready to be presented. And I hope the, that we will have the Department of Planning joining us in these efforts. I think the Department of Planning has a, a, an unfortunate record of uh, displacing you know, residents, and I think that we need to bring them back to create real preservation. So just to give an example of a, a, a very historic structure um, that was recently, fairly recently altered, um, and I just want to kind of ask, would like landmark designation have changed its story anyway? And what I'm thinking of is this Casa Atzlan, uh, which is like, you know, the, the deeply historic community center. It had been a settlement house. And then, you know, since the late 60s, 70s, had been an important part of, of the community there. It was known for its murals. And then when you look at the report um, that the Chicago Commission on Landmarks produced, I mean, it, it makes a l- there's a lot of space given over to, to public art in the Pilsen community. So do you think if the landmark district had existed a couple years ago, would that have prevented the uh, the painting over of, of the mural on, on the exterior of Casa Atzlan or the structure being turned into what it is today, which I believe is what more kind of high-end luxury shared condos. living? Luxury condos, right? Kind of shared. Or do you think it would have had 
relatively no impact at all in terms of like preserving the, the history and I mean, integrity of, the, of that building. I mean, we, we'll see. I mean, it's, it's likely that a developer would have been able to get money to to um, create his own mural or, mm-hmm. or uh, you know, perhaps preserve. I mean, right now, there's no clear ordinance for preservation of murals. Right? Mm-hmm. Now, right. you can, of course, something that we have been pushing and we've been uh, being clear about the importance of preserving the murals in its original um, state. But aside from the mural, which was, again, and, and this developer, by the way, is the same developer that tried to buy Casa Sla, uh, mm-hmm. uh, San Adalbert, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I see a lot of the connections. Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, some of us who have been organizing for a while can identify these players, right? So um, that's the reason why a lot of these uh, uh, historic and landmark buildings were not in the landmark uh, map. But again, I do think that the, in the case of Castle Slan, I mean, that building wasn't demolished, you know, so, mm-hmm. you know, we wouldn't, wouldn't have done anything. In fact, probably the developer would benefit as it stands by incentives, uh, by, you know, preserving the building. So, again, uh, in terms of affordability, instead of who lives there, you know, unfortunately, that landmark doesn't have any effect. It doesn't have any teeth uh, to create affordability, to, you know, and, and to create any sort of incentives or community benefits. By the way, the same developer, you know, and again, the oversight, you know, that promised to the community to create a, uh, I believe that they wanted to create supposedly a uh, arts program for the kids. It never did. Mm-hmm. So again, so some, some of these developers, again, are very savvy in, in terms of how to uh, create incentives for themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that we're at a time in, 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 in the city where we need to make sure that we advocate for the taxpayers, for the homeowners, for the for the people who've been paying taxes for a long time in Pilsen, who built their community, who is helping them. So again, that's that's what we want to create a plan that it doesn't, you know, always worry about. Well, how do we can help those developers? How do we get planning department for the aesthetics, but worry about the people of Pilsen? So indeed, we need to worry about, and we're pushing for an ordinance that will help us protect those 117 uh, historic murals that we have in Pilsen. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, many of them are being are decaying and in need of uh, restore of restoration. There, uh, and I really want to commend a lot of the small businesses that, on their own, without many support, have taken upon themselves to do this. But where is the governmental subsidies and support for them? You know, mm-hmm. not for the developers in in Castellan or or the developers that, that continue to buy properties because there's not um, there are not clear incentives and there's no protection for the for the current homeowners. We, we passed recently. Uh, last year, an ordinance to protect homeowners from harassment of developers, uh, in unsolicited calls and mails and visits, uh, and it has had some effect. We already have seen at least a few homes that were almost uh, ready to be, um, you know, uh, sold because of this pressure. So I do think that there's a lot to be done in terms of legislation to help homeowners, long-term businesses, seniors who are struggling, and that's what we need to focalize our subsidies or support so that we can preserve the social fabric. In terms of demolitions, I do think that we're doing demolition reform. The Department of Planning should be working about demolition reform in the city. And if there's a way to connect to the incentives that we have as a historic district, we are already a historic district. Mm-hmm. So we should be able to connect the demolition reform with the historic district and how do we help and support those small businesses and homeowners. Well, I, I appreciate the holistic uh, kind of approach to these things and the focus on um, 
kind of the preservation of the people and the buildings, right? Uh, at the same time, do you have a sense of of when you, you're working with the people at UIC and at DePaul on some kind of like evidence-based uh, proposals? Do you have a sense about when when those might be kind of like ready for public consumption? So we, we have the, the demolition freezes ready for December 1st. Mm -hmm. uh, the, um, uh, the commissioner and I has, the, has already on her desk, and I hope in the next few weeks we will have the uh, property tax uh, relief uh, ordinance ready. And I think the next steps uh, uh, depend, because, you know, Pilsen uh, is not uh, unique in this issue. You know, we have many other communities struggling with displacement and gentrification. Mm -hmm. So we hope that uh, the Department of Buildings, I think we have a, com a meeting coming up uh, that we want to make sure that, if, you know, the mayor of the city is really committed to reform and, uh, and is really committed to make sure that we protect the people of the city and not those developers that unfortunately continue to have a big, um, a big weight in decisions, then we should be able to have uh, a, a, an ordinance drafted by the Department of Buildings along with the Department of Planning on how we bring demolition reform to protect uh, our community like Pilsen or, or Humboldt Park uh, in the 606 from big developers demolishing homes and building uh, teardowns and building uh, high density in our communities. I do think that that's a conversation we have. We have sent several um, um, uh, studies that we think can help us. And I think that this is a much larger issue, but we will, again, our ordinances are ready for uh, for presentation. We hope that that six-month moratorium will give us enough time and we give the Department of Buildings and Planning enough time to think very carefully in kind of how we do, uh, and again, around uh, the conversions, we're having a conversation with the Department of Housing around the ARO, have already a conversation. And some of these conversations are citywide conversations that we hope that we're able to do it as a city. If not, in these next six months, we will probably create a pilot to show and hopefully create a blueprint on how we can do preservation and how we can create a holistic plan for communities like Pilsen and across the city. All right, we're gonna have to leave it there. Um, thank you so much, Byron, for for uh, for speaking with us today and, and wading through all the, the complex kind of different layers of policy and everything. Uh, we'll be following this story as, as uh, will a lot of people as it develops over the next couple of months. Thank you, Byron. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, take, take care. care. Bye. And that's our show. I'd like to thank our guests, Preservation Chicago Executive Director Ward Miller and 25th Ward Alderman Byron Sicho Lopez. And as always, I'd like to thank my colleague Elliot Heilman. Happy to be here. Our producer Annie Klein and WLPN Radio. And as for you, fine fellow Chicagoans, keep making history.